Welcome to the Employee to Entrepreneur podcast, the podcast specifically for the family man who is sick of the corporate grind. So if you're a husband or a father and you are looking to escape the rat race so that you can enjoy the freedom that comes along with entrepreneurship, then you're in the right place. I made this podcast for you because I am you. I am your host, Brendan Ryan, and I'm making that transition myself. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Josh Plick. And we explore how one needs to cope with quote unquote failure, how one needs to transform as a person in order to find success in entrepreneurship. I've been wanting to have you on for a little while now. So your story involves, we went to the same college and you came out of college and worked as an engineer for a couple of years, I believe, before you decided to do your own thing and do the entrepreneur thing. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what motivated you to do that? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up and my dad's a mechanical engineer at the local electric authority in Jacksonville, or he was, uh, he's retired now. Uh, it's, it's called Jacksonville Electric Authority. And throughout my dad's a baby boomer, and I kind of saw him get screwed over kind of like by the corporations. There was like a whole three-year window where he was underpaid compared to people at his same position, and he had to unionize with other workers and have to go and fight for a raise, and he got back pay for it. And it was just like watching that growing up. Of course, uh, I graduated high school in 2008 into the Great Recession of the United States and of the world economies. So uh, a lot of millennials in general are pretty much not very, um, the word is (laughs) trusting of the the corporate outcome of, you know, pension Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So shout out to my dad. My dad did get a really nice pension as a result of that, but that came at a lot of sacrifice and a lot of hardship. So I studied mechanical engineering at the at the University of Florida, and I was three years into a five year degree, and I knew I didn't want to do it. I was like, "This is this sucks," and I know that what I'm heading for is a life that has a glass ceiling to it because I, I saw my dad. I was I was following in my dad's footsteps. I knew I didn't want to do it, but I knew that if I had a, the the engineering mindset, I could use it for whatever I wanted to do thereafter. So I'm sitting there in college. It's year three. I know that I'm not going to finish this or I know I'm going to finish this degree because I didn't want to I didn't want to be in college a single second longer than I needed to be because I really I personally really hated college because and the reason why is because it's not real. And that's actually probably what attracted me to entrepreneurship. I'm naturally very lazy. And the only thing that actually gets me going is getting involved in a risky type venture. So when I go to school and like I have these assignments and like really they only exist for this quarter or like up until I get my first job, like I know that what I'm doing is not real. And like we're working on theoretical stuff, like not actually designing cars and designing planes, which is what a mechanical engineer does in the real world. We're talking about the equations of motion for a car doing, going down an incline in the rain on like a fake mountain. Like it's just, <laughs> it's cool in a way, but it's not real. And so I did not do very well in school. I, I hated school and I was ready to get out of there as soon as possible. So I had that, right? School is not real in my mind. And then I also have, hey, I'm going to something where I'm going to have a ceiling. Like someone's going to be able to always dictate how much money I'm going to make. Someone's always going to be able to dictate how far I'm able to go into my profession. And so that's what uh, 
attracted me to entrepreneurship very early. I was in college. I read this book by a guy named Alan Wong. He's a Chinese immigrant. And he uh, was one of the first millionaires in the Apple App Store. He made a, an, a police scanner app. It's called Five O Radio. And he wrote a book about it. It's called... Um, Gosh, I don't remember. Yeah, the name of his company is Rego Apps. I don't remember the name of his book at this point, but his name is Alan Wong. And he wrote a book about like how he was working as an engineer almost full time. They actually employed an entrepreneur. It's actually a really good book for this audience uh, because he he rare like a lot of the entrepreneurial journey. It's like, hey, I quit my job and I became an entrepreneur. He actually did it in a very safe route. He actually had his full time job. And on nights and weekends, he would work on the 5.0 police scanner. And then he made enough money where it was enough money for him to be able to leave his job very safely. So I read that book and I was like, dude, I want to make apps. Like, I want to be a software person. And so that led into me telling people that in my personal life, which led to a random email that I got from a marketing company in Jacksonville saying like, hey, your friend, I had a childhood friend who was working there as a software developer. And and he actually studied advertising. That's a whole nother thing. But the owner of this marketing company said, hey, like your friend has recommended you. Why don't you, uh, I, I know you want to make apps, but we also make websites. How about you, when you graduate, you come make websites and apps for us. And so that's how my career started. It's just, you know, I guess like in terms of like law of attraction, like it was just, it was what I was consumed with. I was reading books. I knew I didn't want to be a mechanical engineer. I was telling people about it. And so like the opportunity, it's like uh, like the Eastern philosophy, when the student is ready, the the teacher will appear. Like that's kind of what was what was going on. That's what happened. And what has continued to happen in my life is when I like focus on something like the doors just naturally open because you're kind of just focused on that thing. And so it's sort of like when you buy a new car. Right. And you see, like, say you buy a Ford Explorer, you now see Ford Explorers on the on the road. It's that you're living in the exact same reality, the same box that you were living in before. But your perspective has shifted to notice all the Ford Explorers on the road. So I don't you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not too well versed on the law of attraction, but just on the outside looking in, it just makes a lot of sense to me that when you actually focus on something, um, it naturally comes to you. So that that's essentially how my career started, where I was a mechanical engineer for about a year into my career, and I became a software developer very early. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's wild that you mentioned, um, you know, the law of attraction or the idea that what you focus on expands. That sounds very woo-woo to some people, right? Some skeptical people. And honestly, like it's sounded woo-woo to me in the past as well. However, there's actually some scientific basis for all that. And it's, really? it's wild that you mentioned that because I just published a short form video about this yesterday. Um, and what I mean by that is anybody that's familiar with physics, um, would be familiar with the double slit experiment or the observer effect. Uh, I'm not sure if you are, Josh, but um, basically what it means is when we observe particles, whether they're light or matter, when we observe them, they change their behavior. Mm. And if you actually look at particles under a microscope, they will slowly aggregate and, f- and grow together. So what you're focusing on grows, it expands literally. So you see that like at a literally a micro level under a microscope for particles. But if you think about it on more of a macro scale in terms of people's lives, in terms of um, how to pursue excellence, right? Take somebody like a, a Warren Buffett who has been focused on making money since he was 14 or 15 years old. And now he's a multi-billionaire, one of the richest people alive, 85 billion, I think it is, 
or a guy like uh, Tiger Woods, you know, to talk about it, totally different field. He's focused on golf since he was literally like four or five years old, becomes one of the greatest golfers of all time. So what you focus on expands. The problem is most people focus on things for too short of a time frame, okay. right? They never get to that level of mastery. So, and to that point, I think they get discouraged or they get bored, right? And so in entrepreneurship, I think that that's probably one of the the biggest hurdles, at least for beginner entrepreneurs, is that either they get bored of the thing, which might be a good thing. It might mean it's not for them anyway, right? Whatever they were focused on, or they might encounter some difficulty and quote unquote fail, right? And then get discouraged and just go back to their nine to five or whatever. Um, so tell us about when you, when you launched your business. So you, you, you told us how you got involved and got out of college, why you hated college. And what you mentioned to me makes total sense based on what I know about you. You are a very risk tolerant person. So when you mentioned that college wasn't real, what you were getting at is that the laboratory in which you learn had no stakes, right? right? It was fake in terms of like, there's no stakes. If I fail, like, you know, there's no no big deal, right? And so there's like no negative reinforcement there. Um, So tell us about what motivated you to go entrepreneur and what that was like in the beginning, how you launched your company and everything. For sure. Yeah. So uh, Alan Wong inspired me to do software. So the two books that really were uh, instrumental in in my transition, eventually, almost 10 years later to become an entrepreneur, was uh, Alan Wong's uh, Rego Apps book. And then there was um, MJ DeMarco's The Millionaire Fast Lane. So The Millionaire Fast Lane is, uh, see, I see you shaking your head, yes. That book yeah, a has a ridiculous title, but that book I've read maybe five or six times. It is the, I would say that is the gospel of what we're trying to do here in the employee to entrepreneur route, because it talks about all the different ways to mess it up. And anyway, there's a section in that book where it talks about all the different like business systems that you can have. And it talks about software and building a website and how like it so there's a, a section in the book where there's five things that qualifies a fast lane business. So the reason why it's called, he defines what a fast lane business is, is what you can do is you can make the mistake that I eventually would make, even having read that book, which is launching a business that doesn't have a good, what's called wealth equation. So here's the business. So fast forward to the future, the business that I did end up starting, which was, uh, I'm doing software consulting. I'm helping businesses be able to, um, reduce time-intensive processes, and increase automation through their own software platforms. So the problem with that business is it's a linear wealth equation in the sense that to make more money, I have to get more clients. To get more clients, I have to invest more in marketing. To be able to fulfill those clients, I need to hire more people. And so it's inherently just a linear equation where the only way I get rich is to be able to hire a bunch of people and to manage Uh, like this giant monster. And the example they use in the book is a carpet cleaning business. So the key takeaway from the Millionaire Fastlane book is uh, these five things that qualify as a Fastlane business. And the acronym is N-E-C-S-T, which is next. N means it's the commandment of need. You must solve a need that like people, like when you have an iPhone, right? When the smartphones came out, you have the internet at your fingertips. Like that's the problem it solved. It wasn't obvious at the time, but now it's like something that n- people literally can't li- live without. 
E. E stands for, and I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head, by the way, because I've read this book so many times and like it literally changed my reality. So I ended up starting a, a slow lane business, but E is barrier to entry, meaning that there, should, there needs to be, it needs to be difficult to be able to get into your field. For example, like for, with you, Brendan, as a pharmacist, it takes, uh, you have to effectively become a PhD in pharmacy to become that. Software development, it, it's a, it's a high barrier to entry because not, it's not because like there's education that you need, but because it's very hard to morph your mind to it. So that's E. C is the commandment of control in the sense that if you start a Google affiliates business, if you have an affiliate marketing business or, uh, like you're running, um, your, your business is dependent on another one, you don't have control. And so like, here's a good example of that. It's like all the SEO people, a lot of SEO companies, SEO is short for search engine optimization. A lot of uh, those companies went out of business when the, like the Panda update came out many years ago, the Penguin update came out many years ago because the tactics that they used and unless you were able to innovate and actually figure out what the new Google algorithm was doing, a lot of companies went out of business because they were unable to deliver results for their clients. And the reason why is because they violated the commandment of control. They had a whole business that was dependent on an entirely other company, which was Google. S stands for the commandment of scale. Your business needs to be able to scale quickly with like that was the problem with the slow lane business that I started. The only way I would make more money is with more clients, with more employees. And so it violates the commandment of scale because I can't scale quickly. Like it's, it's the same problem with starting a, sh- a coffee shop on a street corner. You're not going to become a millionaire. Well, there are Chick-fil-A trans- franchises that make millions of dollars per year. You probably could become a millionaire starting a coffee shop. You're never going to become a billionaire becoming a, starting one coffee shop because you need to have thousands of coffee shops to become a millionaire. And T stands for the commandment of time, meaning that it, you, the way you make money needs to be decoupled from you actually working on it. So all that to say, next... Um, man, I forgot how I got into this millionaire fast lane. Where were we at, Brendan? You're describing, um, how that changed your life and how you were in a service business essentially where, um, you couldn't scale because exactly. Yeah. So, oh yeah. So how did I end up becoming an entrepreneur? I knew that I was destined to be it because I, I have a high appetite for risk and I have an attraction to uncapped potential. And that's the problem with being an employee. The problem with being an employee is that you are like, it's always someone else dictating your worth. The beauty of entrepreneurship is that the market can dictate your, your the market dictates your worth. At the end of the day, we all serve somebody like at, at the, the bottom line is that everybody answers to somebody, whether it be the president of the United States, uh, whether it be the, the, the janitor at the, at the, business complex. We all answer to somebody. But the beauty of entrepreneurship is that you have control over people's answer. Because when they say, hey, I don't want this, you can shift. You can pivot that idea and you can make it and turn it into something that the market is going to pay a lot of money for. And that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. And what's attractive about it is because there's unlimited potential. It's, it's, a, it's a problem space that can scale into trillions of dollars. At the time of this recording, this is May 10th, 2023, like we have trillion dollar companies like Apple, Microsoft. These companies are worth trillion, a trillion dollars plus. Um, so my transition into starting a company was, uh, I, I read that book software satisfied four out of those five. It, it automatically satisfies the commandment of time. You can make money without being at your computer. It, it automatically satisfies the commandment of scale because scale, you can scale to billions online. It, it has a high barrier to entry 
and uh, the commandment of control, if you control your own website, this is still tied into the end, the idea that you choose. By choosing uh, to build a website or a web platform, you, you just knock out a lot of the fast lane business ideas uh, or business commandments in that book. So I essentially uh, was training to become a software engineer, to be able to build my own software platform for almost 10 years. And so it got to a point where I was working at a startup. Um, and I kind of like straddled it, right? I was the first employee at this startup. I have about 4% equity in this legal practice management software. This was attractive to me. I worked there for about four years. It sort of satisfied my entrepreneurial tendencies, but it didn't completely, like it was, the reason why is because I was, I stayed at that job for so long because I had a lot of control. The guy that was running the company was the managing partner of his law firm. And so I was almost the effective like CEO of this uh, tech startup. And that's not just hubris. Like the, the ladies that worked at the off- law firm, they had like this, this picture of lions in the office. And like there was this like lion that was like standing above all the other lions and they put like my name on it. They were kind of just showing me love and stuff, I guess. As a young man, you know, I was effectively running a company of like seven, seven or eight people uh, because my boss needed to run his law firm, which was funding our startup, the legal practice management startup. So the reason why I didn't jump ship earlier in my career is because I had my taste of it. I, I was able to manage. I was able to hire people, uh, fire people. Uh, we were. I had. I had that uncapped upside with my four percent equity. Of course, you know it's it's a pittance as opposed to owning the company, but it still satisfied the fact that when I work hard and I and I work till ten p.m. at night, like unless you have overtime, even with overtime, right? If you have like one and a half pay, there's still a capped upside to the extra effort that you're putting in. The beauty of entrepreneurship is that every second that you put in of extra time, you extract 100% of that value. Like it's not because like when you're an employee, the only way the employee-employer relationship works is if there is an inherent disconnect to the value that you're providing to the company that the value can provide to the end consumer. The only reason why people are hired is because of two reasons. Because of one, there's we all have the same limited 24 hours in a day. And so that's the reason why people have to get hired is because one person can't do it all. Two, when people, when someone is hired, the business actually has to make money off of that person being hired. And so that means that there's an inherent disconnect to when someone is hired, you're going to be getting a small piece of the pie compared to how much money the company is going to be making. And so that's the value. The, the beauty of entrepreneurship is that you start off at the top. Like, and, and it's built into the tax code. Like when you're an employee, you pay taxes first. When I get my paycheck, they've already taken out the money. When I own a business, I can spend all the capital and, and literally pay $0 in taxes. When you're an employee, the money gets taken out first. When you're a corporation, the money gets taken out last. And so it's built into the tax code, the value, like you get rewarded for the risk that you get taken on, that you take on as an entrepreneur. And if you continue to invest in your business and you actually don't have any profits in your business, this is this is the reason why Amazon was able to grow to a billion dollar company. They kept reinvesting, uh, starting up Amazon Web Services. They're paying little to almost nothing in taxes for years and decades at a time. And this is these are this is how these big corporations have been able to grow into these mega conglomerates is because at the end of the day, they pay taxes on what they keep. But if they don't keep anything and they keep investing in themselves, they get to grow and just reach critical mass without ever having to pay money. Imagine like having a job where you you don't have to pay taxes, where you literally, you dictate how much money you keep 
And you can decide that, hey, I'm not going to keep anything until 10 years later. And so 10 years later, you're a trillion dollar company. Wow. Like what an outcome. So I guess to answer the question, Brendan, of why I started my business, it's because of all the things that I'm talking about here. Like the math is just bad for being an employee. The the upside to it is that there's a sense of security to it. And I think that that's not even real, though. Like, I don't know how I mean, people are getting late. I, I, I live in I, I work in the tech industry and people are, are getting laid off. Like it's I don't I think that the only security is betting on yourself. And I think that's um, investing in your own education, investing in your own knowledge, because a job can come and go. But when you have your own skill set that you bring to the marketplace, it doesn't like when I show up to the marketplace, I'm unconcerned about a job because I know I'm in, I'm infinitely employable because of the skills that I bring to the marketplace, whether it be being a manager or being an entrepreneur or being someone that can code. So all that to say, um, if somebody's listening to this and you're like standing on the fence on the outside looking in, like, you know, am I good enough? Um, is it going to be too risky? I mean, at the end of the day, we're, none of us are, are getting out of this alive, one. And when I arrive on my deathbed, I, I don't plan on um, the thing that I think that really haunts people is the things that they didn't do. And so I've started this business, right? I started this slow lane business where it's a linear wealth, wealth equation. And I've I, so I, this is kind of transitioning to our next topic, I, I guess, Brendan, which is uh, I've decided to like downsize and shut my company down. The reason why is because I know that I'm doing I'm literally the company I have is in the millionaire fast lane book. This is a, a company that cannot scale to millions and billions of dollars very easily. And so here I am servicing all these clients. I'm hiring all these people. And uh, I it just I know that I was going about it the wrong way. I'm not I, I don't have a, a math equation that's exponential out of the box. I have a math equation like you can't beat math. Math is unbeatable, just like death and taxes. There are certain things in life that are undefeated. And math is one of those things. <laughs> you can't beat math. So, um, yeah, I, I started the company um, uh, where so I've been running it for about three and a half years now. So in in the grand scheme of things, the, the world, as as I'm perceived by the world, I am a success. I have a company that's made over the course of the past three years about $800,000, which is pretty cool. Like within three years, almost close to a million dollars. And uh, we've serviced clients. Thousands of people were affected by the software that we made. I've had four, five, six employees in that time. Um, but I've decided to shut it down. And the reason why is because it did not actually feed. I, I, I had effectively created a job for myself. Literally, like the only way I make money is for to make sure that we're billing our time and I have to track people's timesheets and make sure that the clients are paying. Like, it's just, it's, it was, it's a drag. And like, why I've created a, a job for myself and I, that's not what I want. I want to have an exponential outcome. So I'm at a point in my life as we're recording this, where I'm actually going to be pivoting into actually starting a fast lane type business. All right, I'm done. Nice, man. That was beautiful. There is so much value there. I wasn't expecting you to put on the entrepreneurial clinic for us, but thank you for laying that all out. So for you, it sounds like um, it was very logical for you that somewhere along the way, very early on in your employee career, you, you realize that the numbers don't really make sense to continue doing this, right? And you realize that um, I call it for my own journey, it was my financial red pill moment. I read 
Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad kind of late. And that was like the, the book that made the spark for me to realize that this is not the way, right? Like this is not the way to really be free. And you mentioned um, something that I think actually is a misconception. The idea that having a job, being an employee is more of a safe route than entrepreneurship. And I, I think the way that you phrased it, you, you might agree. Um, but I think people confuse comfort with safety. I think okay. it's very comfortable um, to have a job and to have and to know what to expect in terms of your income biweekly or whatever it is. Um, and not have to put up a lot of your own capital and risk it. In other words, risk for a lot of people is very uncomfortable, right? Maybe not so much for you. You seem like a risk tolerant guy, but for a lot of people, they're, you know, they're more risk adverse. And so I think they confuse comfort with safety. It's not actually safe. You, your employer can 100% fire you whenever they want. Right. They're the ones with the power, right? It's not safe at all. Investing in yourself, betting on yourself, like you were describing, having that skill set, that um, highly employable skill set, in your case, um, coding, right, software, is is something that nobody can ever take away from you. Um, so I, I, I believe that that's a misconception, like a, a common conventional wisdom that needs to go away, like bad information, essentially. I think that, you know, 50, 100 years ago, that might if you were to go work in a factory as a laborer and you got a pension, you were part of a union, there's a lot of things that used to exist that that sweetened that deal, if you will. But you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that your, your dad got a pension. Um, most jobs don't have pensions anymore. Most right. or give you a 401k, which was something, by the way, anybody listening to this, look up the uh, invention of the 401k, how that came about. The idea was that they wanted to shift the responsibility for retirement from the employer to the employee, right? So it's uh, not not as safe as it used to be. Yeah. It used to be your pension. They, they, they basically paid you into retirement. Um, so anyway, yeah, let's talk about um, the evolution, if you will, right? So to me, from my own experience, entrepreneurship has really been a lot about self-improvement, but especially self-discovery. So you might go out, as I mentioned earlier, and try things and realize that you're bored by this, you don't really enjoy it, or like you kind of got discouraged and you, you go and pivot to something else. But knowing what I know about you, it seems like you're kind of experiencing something similar. So what what are your thoughts about that? Have you, as time has gone on and you've taken the actions that you have, built the companies that you have, and where you're at today with everything that you're doing, do you think that um, that has shed a lot of light on like what your purpose is in the world, in other words? Uh, I, I would say that that was one of, one of the most unexpected benefits of entrepreneurship. And the one that I would give the most credit to is that it has forced me to grow to be a better man. Here's a good example of that. Um, there was an employee that I had back at the startup, the legal startup that I worked at, that was uh, just not getting a lot done uh, compared to the other employees on the team. So it was a software team. And this guy was, uh, at this time, I was becoming a uh, manager for the first time in my career. This guy was uh, replacing me as a back-end engineer on the team. At the time, we had two back-end engineers. We had four front-end engineers. Long story short, at, in the software world, we work in what are called sprints, where they're usually between one to four weeks of like, hey, here's the body of work we're going to be achieving by the end of this one to four week window. 
And whenever we would show up to the sprint deadlines, everybody would have their work done, but this guy would only show up with like 30 or 40% done. And um, essentially, I ended up needing to let him go. And the reason why is because he wasn't performing and I needed to... I had needed to keep the integrity of the team in the sense that everybody else is keeping up. Why aren't you keeping up? And like, it was something that I really avoid wanted to avoid because we were starting to get health insurance at the time. He was showing me pictures of his kids. And like, so there's a few things that were wrong here. One, I wanted to avoid the conflict of having to fire somebody. And I liked this guy, by the way, I liked him and I didn't want to have to fire him, but I want, but I also, but I was also obligated to protect the integrity of the team and how everybody else was showing up. It was an all remote environment. So I couldn't, you know, I had very little vision onto what people were doing throughout the day. I can only judge people by their output in a remote environment. So that's one. Two, I ended up letting him go. But as you can probably tell, I didn't let him know explicitly my frustrations and my lack of um, acceptance of his performance at the time. And so when I, in, when I ended up firing him, one of the biggest regrets of my life, so I don't regret firing him. I, one of the biggest regrets of my life was how I went about firing this man. Because I, I you know, I, 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 our company's in Florida, so it's a right to work, work state, meaning that we can fire with, without reason. So there was no personal, and it's a startup, like there's less, there's not a lot of like infrastructure. So I, he never was put on a personal improvement plan. I was never clear to him about, like, I wasn't abundantly clear to him that he was riding on eggshells with me. And so when I went to fire him, like, he actually started crying and was like, dude, like, I didn't, like, why is this happening? And the problem at this time is that the CEO that we had at the time, the managing partner of the law firm hired a CEO who worked for um, an HR company. And so during this the, the exit interview, I could... Like the CEO like stepped in and was like, like, hey, like, you know, you know why you're being fired. And like, this is the last conversation I had with this man. This is almost 10 years ago now. Um, and it's one of the biggest regrets of my life, how I went about firing him. I needed to fire him, but I didn't let him know why he was being fired. And it was messed up, essentially. And so what what this uh, uh, showed me was that I had a, a level, there was a level of neglect in my life, like if I look at like my own life, like I, you know, I, I kind of do struggle with like cleanliness and stuff like that. Like I literally went and just got my, my truck detailed recently because it's, it's kind of nasty. Um, what I came to understand in a, so that, of course that wasn't entrepreneur, but it was semi entrepreneurial because I was the first employee. I had a lot of control of the company. Um, I have been forced on many occasions to address my own, like, in an entrepreneur environment, because the risk is so high and you're taking on 100% of the outcomes, when problems show up in your business, they can almost always be attributed back to a flaw in the, in the founder. And so fast forward years later, I had a problematic employee, someone like, someone like this, where it's a remote environment, they were kind of taking advantage of the situation, they weren't getting things done. In, because of my experience back with this employee at the legal startup, I was abundantly clear with this new employee, which was like, hey... This is like your output is not acceptable. And like if like over the course of multiple meetings, I would say like this is not acceptable. This is these are my expectations. I believe them to be reasonable. You are not meeting these expectations. All that fast forward to when the day I needed to fire this young man later, it was completely cordial because at the end of the day, 
I was very clear with my expectations to him. He understood them. He didn't meet them. And me and this young man are friends to this day, even though that I fired him. And that's the difference. It's because I became somebody who was forthcoming with my emotions and my expectations. And that has that has spilled out into my relationships with people outside of the business sphere. One of the biggest benefits of becoming an entrepreneur is because when everything becomes your fault, it like and because the the mistakes are all magnified. Like I've made one hundred fifty thousand dollar mistakes running my company, like uh, not putting things into contracts. And so when uh, a client says, oh, why did you build this? I'm not paying for this. I, and in my mind, I know that they agreed to work on this. Everything, especially in a, in a client, um, in a professional services context, everything needs to show up into a contract. Now, someone listening to this is going to gloss over that. But if this was to if this was me listening to this podcast many years ago, I would say that is the biggest mistake I've made in my professional services company is not putting everything into a contract that, hey, like this is what we're going to do. This is how much this is how much it's going to cost. And this is when it's going to be done. It that not doing that has cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that and like all that is is tied to the, the concept of being a man of your word. And like, that's what the whole contract is. It's, it's an explicit representation of this company is going to follow their word and there are going to be legal and financial ramifications otherwise. So in terms of the entrepreneurial journey, just to wrap it all up, one of the greatest benefits is that it has forced me to become a better human being, a better man, someone with more character because the mistakes hurt so much more. They're magnified, they're quadrupled, they're quintupled. And so while it hurts and it's very painful, like being an entrepreneur, it you can't really afford to avoid um, your flaws because your flaws are going to show up over and over again on the bottom line, the top line and the middle lines of like the beauty of entrepreneurship is it all shows up in the numbers. Like in terms of accounting, it's either going to show up in lack of revenue. It's going to show up in higher expenses or it's going to show up in profit not made. And those mistakes can almost always, in my experience, be ascertained back to a character defect in the founder that they need to work on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's I've crazy, right? Say- Isn't that insane? Yeah. yeah. Where have you heard someone say that? <laughs> uh, oh, about um, like your business problems being re- being reflective of your own personal yeah, yeah. problem? Yeah. I forget where I heard that. It, um, I want to say it was somebody on Twitter recently, but yeah, yeah, it's, I, it's like unexpected, I, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a hundred percent true, though. But that that was an awesome story that you you gave there about you know the firing back back in the day when you were less experienced versus how you fire now, how you set expectations, how you grew through that, and I think that um, you know it's an interesting perspective that you have. I think you know ultimately what it makes me think is that when the stakes are higher, like they are in entrepreneurship, because the stakes are, are very low in being an employee or in school, like you were saying about it being, not being real when you were in college, because there are essentially are no stakes. You can, you can fail, make mistakes, et cetera. And it's all fake anyway. Right. But when the stakes are real and when the stakes are big, it almost forces you to learn faster, a lot faster than, than otherwise. Right. 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 Um, so I think that's really cool. I think that's a, an interesting perspective that I've personally never heard before. Um, so kudos for that, man. You're teaching me things. Um, uh, what you said about that whole firing thing really makes me think about 
the connection between entrepreneurship and leadership. I think that in the beginning stages of entrepreneurship, it's maybe not so much necessarily about leadership. It depends on how you, you launch, right? Like a lot of people, I think nowadays, because it's so easy to start an online business, so many people are solopreneurs or something like that, um, that there is essentially no leadership component to it. But if you were somebody that, you know, took out an SBA loan and bought an already established business, you're, you're thrusted into a leadership position right, right from the get-go. And no matter what, eventually you're going to run in that, into that, especially, you know, if you're successful in entrepreneurship. Once you scale your business, you're going to have to hire people. You're going to have to manage people. And so that, that brings in a whole different skill set. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that, you know, is a perfect example, really, of how entrepreneurship is about self-discovery and self-improvement, especially in that, in that case. But what are your thoughts um, about that in general, like entrepreneurship and leadership? Do you, do you think of them as the same thing or do you think of them as, you know, totally different? Yeah, so I, I do think that they're very tightly connected. And the reason why is because when you're an entrepreneur, you're forging a new reality. You're, you're going into a hungry marketplace and you're trying to forge and create money that is being directed to other places. You're trying to get it directed towards you. And so that money, of course, that means a lot to people. And so it's, it's competitive. And so... You're forging a new reality, one. That's, so what we're talking about is vision. An entrepreneur must have a vision for the future that doesn't exist already. That's a big part of leadership. Two, you have to be able to communicate said vision. The, the reason why the biggest uh, leaders of our past are so well-respected is because their ability to communicate their visions, their visions to the masses, whether it be Steve Jobs, whether it be uh, Abraham Lincoln, I'm trying to think of a, a, a lady person, um, Margaret Thatcher. Like the reason why these people are respected as leaders is because of their ability to have vision, to uh, communicate said vision. And then three, this is a one that is not as well known, is willingness to embrace the unknown. And this is the reason why someone like a Winston Churchill is so well-respected, because literally they had death and they had the future of humanity on their doorsteps. We're talking about England being bombed from France. Literally, the German forces went all the way through France, and they are bombing the island of the United Kingdom. And this is the, the final stand of humanity in World War II. Like, it doesn't get more... It doesn't get more dramatic than that. And this is a man who's been known. Uh, you know, I don't know what he was doing at that time. He was, he was known for taking naps throughout the day. And that's the reason why we respect <laughs> someone like a Winston Churchill or a General MacArthur, um, because these people were able to withstand the pressure and the stress of leadership. Um, and that's the burden of leadership. The burden of leadership is that uh, the responsibility falls on your shoulders. Um, so in regards to entrepreneurship, when you first start off, so something I want to address uh, with respect to entrepreneurship is that it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Because when you, when you start off as an entrepreneur, typically you're what's called a technician. You're somebody who is, hey, I am a pharmacist and I, you know, I deal out these dosages. I don't really know what a pharmacist does. I just know it's drugs. Um, <laughs> for I'm a coder and I code, I code people's problems 
and I solve them with a repeatable loop of code that makes it so that no human has to think about this. So this is what a technician does. But then when you start off as an entrepreneur, you're no longer responsible for only your job. You now have to do sales. You now have to do marketing. You now have to uh, do bookkeeping. You now have to add it. You have to get company insurance for yourself. You also need to get general liability insurance for your company so that if you do get sued, you don't go under. All these different things that you now have to think about means that you're now going to be working the job of about three or four different people. So especially at the very beginning, you go from working 40 hours a week to working 80 hours a week, 70 hours a week, 60 hours a week. And the reason why that's necessary is because you have to continue to do the actual work that's fulfilling the outcome of the business, but you're now responsible for all the other elements of attracting new people, getting people to actually give you money, following up with people who said they were, they were going to give you money, collections, like things that you never had to think about. You have to do all these things now as an entrepreneur. And so guess what? The only way out of that, there's only one way out of that problem. You have to hire people. And once you hire people, you're now responsible for them getting that job done that you were previously doing. And that's a big mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make. Like, they think that they're special. I, I was dating this, this lady that uh, she runs a, 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 a lash salon. She's like a lash specialist. And um, one, of her, one of my complaints about her as an entrepreneur is that she thinks that only she can do like, the customer service level that is up to her standard. And so the reason why that's a bad thought process is because it, it, it naturally leads to you being unable to scale because then you're going to be like, you're going to be hiring people and then you're going to be expecting them not to be able to give the same level of customer service that you are. It's just unscalable. It's an unscalable thought process. You need to be thinking, your, thinking of your business eventually as a machine where money comes in and people's problems come in and then you transform it and you end up with a, an excellent result for their customer where they feel like they have higher value than they spent at the very beginning. And if you think that you're special or that um, nobody can do it like you, you're, you're, this is ultimately like what we were talking about, Brendan, about like the kind of things like that's a, it's a character defect. And the reason why you know it's a character defect, because there are trillion dollar companies, you know, people love Chick-fil-A's and Starbucks, but guess what? At the end of the day, all that stuff is because of culture and employee manuals. <laughs> the reason why those companies are amazing is because of they've been able to systematize excellent customer service. So to say that you're special and that only you can do that customer service, it's, it's false. It's not real because we see it at the billion dollar, trillion dollar scale. Yeah, I don't know where we're at. <laughs> what yeah, what are we talking I, about? I, 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 no, no, I think that that's a great topic. And I actually want to ask you a couple questions about that, the whole hiring to scale your business thing, because I agree with you. I think, especially in the past, that was 100% true. But point number one is globalization is happening, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I, I don't really want to debate that on the podcast, right? But globalization is happening. And in a lot of industries, um, getting overseas talent has been, has enabled the pe people or entrepreneurs to scale a lot faster because there's a big arbitrage in terms of how strong the dollar is here versus somewhere like Colombia or Pakistan or whatever it might be. So you might be able to hire employees to do certain things for you in a remote fashion so that you can still have a decent profit margin um, to grow and scale your business, right? Whereas you 
if you were to go hire American talent, it can be quite expensive. Now, I know in your particular industry, in software in, in particular, that is a lot harder to do. I think that it is possible, right, to hire overseas talent that are coders, but it seems like the the norm there is that the standard of work is a lot lower in that case. And that, that can be true for, you know, any, anything else as well. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that that is the future, really. I, I really think that uh, I don't even think it's the future, actually. I think it's the current state of affairs. I think if you're not already hiring overseas, at least for some portion of your business, you're already kind of at a disadvantage. And the reason I say that is because if you think about it, big companies have already been doing this for decades, Companies like Nike or Apple or whatever outsource a lot of their labor overseas because of that, because there's such a huge arbitrage. And now with the advent of so many entrepreneurs starting these online businesses, you see them hiring people from the Philippines or whatever in order to grow and scale their businesses. And I think I actually think it's a really good thing. It gives those people a really good job. Um, it creates jobs for people overseas. It enables you to connect with other cultures and all that kind of thing. That said, you know, there's, of course, some downsides, some cons to that. But what are your thoughts on that whole idea? Right. If you're not, if you're not leveraging remote work, you're making a mistake in the modern economy. And the reason why is because with the increased globalization, you have access to talent, especially in, in the software world. It started off with just remote people where when I was hiring back at the legal startup, I was literally I was very opposed to remote work. Hey, I want to be able to see people, see that they're working. I was unable to source the people that I needed in Jackson, Florida. I was forced by default to, to engage in remote work. So we hired people in Virginia, Missouri, um, Michigan. And we were able to find those people online. And so, of course, the downside to that is there's two major downsides that I'm aware of, which is, you know, it's hard to maintain a company culture remotely um, because, you know, you don't have the kind of tribal knowledge moments that you do. Everything must be more explicit in a remote world. The reason why is because there's no like, you know, getting into the office five minutes early and you're chatting with your boss and you find out about this document that was in the corner of the office. Like none of that exists in a remote world because everything is much more explicit. So that means you must be more organized. And ultimately, you can't see people do the work. And so you don't know if you're actually getting what the value that you're expecting. And so you have to be more explicit about what are your expectations. Like everything is much needs to be much clearer in a remote environment. Here are my expectations. Here's when I expect you to actually be working. You know, in a lot of remote environments are completely loosey-goosey. Hey, work whenever, however. I personally don't believe in that. I believe that people should be starting work at the same time every single day. Um, but that's a whole nother thing. Like, in a, so one, if you're not leveraging remote work, you're making a mistake. Two, it is now easier than ever to uh, use people from overseas, to get things done, and they're naturally going to be cheaper. Now, the, the 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 counter to that is because they're going to be cheaper, all they're going to be concerned with is getting things done. And this is the reason why there still are software engineers in the United States that are making $400,000, $600,000 a year. The reason why is because these people don't have as much incentive to just get it done. I've had a lot of opportunity in my career as a software consultant because of people hiring overseas labor. They're literally just pay, the, the term is called cash for buttons. Hey, I'll give you cash. You give me my buttons. 
And so these people aren't incentivized to do a good job because their wealth equation is based off of, I get paid a fixed amount. And so the faster that I can get it done, no matter how many corners I cut, that's going to be the source of my profit because they're already getting less money because they're, they have weaker economies. So in a, in a remote globalized world, there's a trade-off in the sense that these people are going to be incentivized to just, just get the job done as fast as possible. And that may not be what, what you need. And so you, you, in a remote world, you need to be forever vigilant. You need to be forever vigilant about your internal company processes. They need to be very, very clear, very explicit. And then your expectations for the people in regards to the quality control. Um, because when you're working in a remote environment, people are the natural economic incentive is to just get things done as fast as possible. So if I have a 40-hour-a-week job, if I can get it done in 10 hours a week, then it's theoretically possible that I could work four jobs. This is what remote work allows. And so this is why having processes, quality control, is really important to prevent the capitalistic incentives for, that could work against you in a remote world. Yeah, so well said, man. I totally agree. You really have to have the SOPs dialed in. Very, very well, like really down to the absolute details when you're hiring uh, remote, whether that is, you know, it, within the U.S., like you're describing, um, you know, if you're in Florida hiring in Virginia, but especially, especially if you're hiring overseas, you really got to dial it all the way down and list every little thing that you think may not be necessary. Right. 100% yeah. agree. The other thing I wanted to ask you about with regards to hiring in order to scale your business is the idea of leveraging and you're you're you know you're a tech guy you're a coder you're in software but with the advent of the ai age the artificial intelligent age i already see people leveraging this right for instance um a guest that i had on my podcast a few weeks ago you met him the other day at a cigar bar jonathan green yep does this in his own business i i don't know how this guy does it like he he's an absolute whiz with hooking up chat GPT to everything apparently, but I I've actually seen him do it. So it's right, not just right. blowing smoke. Um, but this idea that um, creating systems might even be better than hiring actual people, especially systems that involve, you know, AI. What are your thoughts there? Have you played with um, AI at all? And what do you see as the future with regards to that? Yeah, so artificial intelligence, I'm very bullish on. I think it is inevitable at this point with the advent of uh, chat GPT-3 coming out and kind of reaching the cultural zeitgeist. It became obvious to the world that artificial intelligence is for everyone, and it's pretty much free. I use artificial intelligence almost on a near daily basis at this point. And the reason why, the reason why it's so powerful is because instead of having to go to Google and having to figure out what the result is within millions of results. Of course, you know, we probably only look at the first three or five pages. Artificial intelligence advantage is actually giving you the result precisely up front. And so it's more efficient and it's more accurate. And so we live in a world where artificial intelligence is un undeniable at this point. Like it is inevitable. I think that it is, it's so far the level of innovation that's coming out at this point is um, almost scary. I think that we're going to get to a point with it where we're going to have some serious ethical concerns because uh, there was a story that came out recently where this uh, guy went to a veterinarian clinic, clinic, he had a border collie, and he couldn't figure out what was wrong with his dog or something like that. 
and he got some diagnostics run on his dog. He took it to some vets, and they were unable to figure out what was pro- what the problem was with his border collie. He put in those diagnostic results into ChatGPT, and he was able to get a, a a very high accuracy diagnosis for his dog, not dealing with any professional at all. ChatGPT was able to figure out what was wrong with his dog, and he was able to take that to a vet, and someone was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And he was able to actually get the care for his animal that he wasn't able to get from human beings who are highly trained and have years of experience. So this is the world we live in where, I mean, I saw another one on LinkedIn the other day where uh, this lady's breast cancer was detected four years in advance before any human eye could detect the breast cancer. So they were able to knock it out quickly. Like the, the end result of artificial intelligence at this point is going to be excellent human outcomes. But we're also going to see where artificial intelligence, they're going to have police robots. They have bomb-strapped robots that are going into buildings and blowing up people. Artificial intelligence is going to save lives. Artificial intelligence is going to kill people. And so, like, this is, it's, it's already happening. And so, it's undeniable, and you should be using it, in my opinion, uh, or you will be falling behind. If you're not using artificial intelligence at this point, you are falling behind. And it's easy to use. It's easy. Like, there's no excuse. So everybody should be using it because it's awesome. It's easy to use. I think the ethical concerns are very, are, are very concerning uh, in the future. But that's not going to change whether, like, this is going to exist or not. This is 100% going to exist. If you can't beat them, join them. Join the robot yeah. overlords. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think I think it's already here, right? It's not a matter of it's going to exist. It already does. Right. And so I think I've heard not just you, but multiple people say, like, if you're not using it already, you're falling behind. And I 100% agree because it's going to be incredibly disruptive, incredibly disruptive in terms of all kinds of jobs for all kinds of people. Right. right? But if you do get in the habit well, of we, using I, it I now, I want to make a point about Brendan, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to make a point about specifically what you just said about all kinds of jobs for all kinds of people. I think that the general conception is that artificial intelligence is going to kill jobs. Uh, I think that in the far future, that is probably true, maybe 15 years ago. But if we look at just like just on a positive note, if we look at human innovation, I mean, we're talking about the printing press, the mobile phone, the cell phone, the radio, uh, human flight, all these things the the factory <laughs> we're talking about the industrial revolution all these things were game breaking game changing innovations and yet we still have we live in a world where unemployment is at some of the lowest levels in history society adapts humanity adapts new jobs are always created the milkman doesn't exist anymore um the the video retail store blockbuster doesn't exist anymore but now we have new things there's netflix People work at Netflix, customer support at Netflix. So there's always going to be a job. The person who's coming for your job is not going to be a robot. The person that's coming for your job is someone who's using artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence person is going to be as productive of, as up to two to five people. And so that's what, when I say that you're falling behind by not using artificial intelligence, it's because if you refuse to use it, the person that's going to, it's going to be a a generation Z person who's using artificial intelligence is running circles around everybody else in the organization. And so, oh, redundancy, you know, corporate economics, we're going to drop some people, layoffs, layoffs, we don't need all these people. 
if you're not using artificial intelligence, someone who is, is going to take your job. All you have to do is start using it. It's very easy to use. There's no reason to be afraid because ultimately with innovation throughout, we can look at all of human history. It's not that like, people are just going to be jobless. The jobs are just going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately, like you said, it will kill jobs. It will disrupt a lot of industries. But right now, as it stands right now, it's actually creating jobs. I'm already seeing job listings for quote unquote prompt engineers, right? right. So it's definitely, um, in, 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 like you said, in the long term, it is 100% a plus for, you know, human life. It always is. It's always scary. Everybody's always afraid that, oh no, the, the milkman job is going away or the ice man job is going away or whatever, but ultimately it improves people's lives. So definitely agree, man. I, I need to have you back on the podcast because you are just uh, a wealth of knowledge with regards to entrepreneurship. Um, so we need to do this again sometimes because I feel like we could go on for two hours. But as it stands, um, I know that you're a little bit focused on some other ventures in your life right now, but are, um, where can people find you if they want to know more about software? I know that you are an expert in the coding language of Elixir in particular. So where can people find you if they want to know more? Sure. Yeah. So I'm active on Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube uh, under my name, Joshua Plick, uh, last name P-L-I-C-Q-U-E, and my company, Or Equals. Uh, of course, I'm kind of shutting down the public side of doing software. I'm doing it on a personal level. So I had four or five employees, but right now I'm kind of focusing on transitioning into building my own intellectual property because I was just, the, the wealth equation that I was talking about was purely linear. I needed more clients, I needed more employees. And so what I'm doing at this point in my life is building my own, whether it be stock trading algorithm, uh, something, something for poker players, uh, like some sort of like helping people improve, whether it be artificial intelligence. I'm kind of transitioning into working for the world part-time and then working for myself part-time so that I can actually build something that has an exponential outcome. So uh, essentially you can find me at orequals.com. You can find me by just looking up my name, Joshua Plick, P-L-I-C-Q-U-E on all socials. And uh, yeah, you can get in touch with me. So guys, if you're listening to this podcast on YouTube, please give the show a like or subscribe. Or if you're on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate it if you left the show a review. But if you're thinking of making the transition from employee to entrepreneur, please do so. I highly implore you to do so because I really believe that the world needs more entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs solve problems and there are plenty of problems to go around. So join me, join Josh and make the employee to entrepreneur jump and we will see you on the other side.